Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Matthew Hofarth. Today is March 3rd, 2022, and I'm speaking with historian of science and technology, Adam Shapiro. His most recent book is Science and Religion, a very short introduction. Today, however, we'll be talking with him about his first book, Trying Biology, The Scopes Trial, Textbooks, and the Anti-Evolution Movement in American Schools, which explores the historical context of the Scopes Trial and the development of biology as a curriculum in American high schools in the early 20th century. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. To start, can you tell us how you became interested in this project? Absolutely. My interest has really always been in the historical interaction between religion and science. And as a graduate student, I was looking at a variety of potential dissertation topics that would explore those intersections. And while I was in the process of doing that, I began to look at the textbooks from the Scopes trial to just get a, a deeper sense of what was going on. And by accident, really, I requested by interlibrary loan, not the textbook that was used by John Scopes in the trial, but was the new edition of the book that came out about a year and a half after the trial. And when I had a chance to look at these two textbooks side by side, I realized something very interesting must have happened to go from what was used in the courtroom and the classroom to what was presented to people as a post-scopes response. Ultimately, that led me down a sort of rabbit hole to the archive of the publisher of that textbook and then to the archives of other textbook authors and publishers. Eventually, it just grew into this project. It, it made me realize that we really need to rethink a lot about what the history of American anti-evolutionism is and really center the educational aspects of it. The Scopes trial is often depicted as a paradigmatic battle between science and religion. You challenge that notion in your book. Can you tell us more about why that view is incorrect, or at least incomplete? So for quite a long time, historians of religion and science have relied on what they commonly call the conflict thesis. This was really first put forward in the second half of the 19th century by a number of historians who really wanted to create a narrative in which science was seen as an inherently progressive movement that created increasing and more and more useful knowledge, but was occasionally attacked and inhibited by the powers that be in the form of religious argumentation and the exertion of ecclesiastical power. So they would hold up examples like the alleged persecution of Galileo and other people who they would say had been silenced or repressed by religious authority inhibiting the growth of science. That narrative seems to fit the story of the Scopes trial very well. For people who are unfamiliar with the trial, in 1925, the state of Tennessee passed a law prohibiting the teaching of evolution or more specifically, teaching that human beings had evolved from a non-human ancestor, or that an account of creation existed that conflicted with the account of creation given in the book of Genesis. John Scopes was a school teacher in Tennessee at the time, and agreed to be put on trial, agreed to be charged with violating this law, 
for the purpose of being convicted and then challenging the validity of that law in an appellate court. The goal of not just Scopes, but of the relatively new ACLU and other organizations was to try to uh, push back against this sort of encroachment on, on a nascent idea of academic freedom. But in order for the Scopes trial to be seen as this important and crucial event in American history, basically people on both sides, both on John Scopes' side and on the side of the state that was prosecuting him, had to try to make the trial become an event that happened for grand reasons. The point was to make this trial not just about what John Scopes did, but an opportunity to debate the grand vision of science versus religion. And for the most part, people took that myth-making seriously. So even now, people point to the Scopes trial as proof that science and religion are fundamentally at odds with one another, and that there's really no way that we can either reconcile them or to provide a more complicated story. What I try to do in the book is to say that if we can show why the Scopes trial happened without appealing to the specific content of evolution or the specific content of theology, and to show how this really played out as part of a larger proxy battle over the role of public schools in American life, then the Scopes trial no longer serves to justify claims of a science and religion conflict. And that doesn't mean that there aren't moments of conflict, but it means that we no longer can say that they're inevitable. Speaking of the context in which the Scopes trial happened, you focus much of the book on the educational textbook industry of the early 20th century. Why was this industry so important to understanding the Scopes trial? Because this is a tremendously important time in the history of American education. You have, for a variety of reasons, a massive surge in the number of people who are attending schools, especially public schools, who are receiving new kinds of curricula in those schools. You're seeing the professionalization of teachers through the rise of teachers' training colleges, through the creation of professional guilds and organizations like teachers' unions, um, and you're seeing increasing oversight and rigorous kind of efforts to regulate the curriculum and the idea that education is itself a form of economic development, or at least a tool towards economic development. At the time of the Scopes trial, Tennessee was desperately trying to grow its public education base. And this is where I really start the story, is that the state governor was pushing to try to pass an education bill that would guarantee at least one high school in every county in the state that would increase the length of the school year um, and dedicate funding to, the, to create schools to train new teachers. And this met with a lot of opposition from people for whom the ideological goals that they associated with education were incompatible with the way of life that they had already grown comfortable with. And, and so evolution became, in some ways, the symbol, and biology and science education in general became the symbol of what it was that they opposed. 
not because evolution was specifically threatening the people's way of life, uh, but because the kind of state that would put this curriculum in the classroom was a state that represented a threat. The Scopes trial occurred in rural Tennessee in 1925, at a time when, as you said, secondary education was becoming compulsory throughout the nation. How did compulsory schooling set the stage for the trial and for the battle over teaching evolution more generally? John Scopes was teaching in a high school in Tennessee, in a town called Dayton, Tennessee. Dayton was in some ways an unusual place demographically. It was a fairly small town. Its population was under 2,000 at the time. But it was a, one of the few rural county seats in Tennessee that had a longstanding high school. Part of that was because in the 1890s, Dayton had been a, a larger city. There had been a brief industrial boom during which time the high school had been built. And so you have this tension in play between trends towards urbanism and industrialism and people who had seen firsthand the false promises of that, if they could remember back a generation or so, and sort of a reversion to a version of American identity and a version of an American way of life, which many of the people in, in Dayton and the surrounding county saw as both inherently traditional and inherently American, a more rural and agrarian economy and lifestyle. And so Dayton is in some ways a little bit of both. It is both rural and urban in certain ways. And that tension has been one of the major cultural and political tensions throughout this period. William Jennings Bryan, who participated in the Scopes trial and was a vocal supporter of the anti-evolution law, passionate defender of it in the courtroom, actually really began his rise to national prominence almost 30 years earlier with what's called the famous Cross of Gold speech. And this is a speech in which this young legislator from the Midwest, from Nebraska, comes to the Democratic National Convention in the city of Chicago, itself just a few years removed from the great fire that had burned the entire city down, and basically delivers what to some people sounds like a threat and to some people sounds like a promise that says, if you burn down your cities and leave the farms, the cities will spring up again overnight. But if you leave the cities and destroy the farms, then weeds will grow in the streets of every city in America. And so that tension between a vision of America that is predominantly agrarian and predominantly rural and an America that is rapidly industrializing and urbanizing, and it's important to add, doing so by also diversifying ethnically and culturally, that tension is really one of the most important political tensions of the era. That tension is what's at play in Tennessee and then play in Dayton in microcosm. And the stakes for compulsory education, not just in Dayton, but throughout Tennessee, are precisely that. The legislator who proposed the anti-evolution law, John Washington Butler, was not from Dayton. He was from the Cumberland Plateau area, an area that had even fewer high schools and was even more rural and agrarian than the eastern Tennessee area that Dayton is set in. And 
to his mind and to the mind of many of his constituents, the kinds of educational reforms that a progressive governor was pushing was really a signal that it's not just the case that my children will now be forced to go to school, but the things that they will learn in school is meant to prepare them for a future which is industrial, living in cities and working on factories. For people who have had farms in their in their families for generations, this seems like a threat to their way of life. And to be honest, these people did not need to open the Bible to tell you why they would have a problem with it. However, they did notice that there had been religious criticisms of the theory of evolution ever since Darwin, if not before. And so the opportunity to use that language to put a moral valence onto the culture war that they were engaged in was an opportunity that many of them embraced. The teaching of biology in the early 20th century was often freighted with social Darwinism and progressive era politics. How did these associated ideas foment resistance to teaching evolution? They were a crucial part of the overall reaction to science education and to biology education. One of the things I try to get into in the book is the idea that the biology curriculum that was being pushed out starting in the mid-1910s was deeply tied to progressive politics. This is because the case that was being made for an integrated biology was not a value-neutral one. Around this time, scientists have already realized that the old-school way of doing things where you would teach a semester of botany and a semester of zoology didn't really square with getting at the core intellectual concepts of biology. Scientists said, we know that plants and animals, although very different in some ways, have a lot of commonalities. For example, the concept of metabolism, cellular theory, principles of heredity, the theory of evolution. These are all core concepts that apply to both plant and animal life, and we should reorganize the biology curriculum around these commonalities that living things have. But the justification for doing that was given as something that looked at the social applications of biological principles. So when you talk about metabolism, you're going to see discussion of a healthy diet. You're going to see advocation of temperance, this being during the, the period of debate before prohibition goes into effect. When you see discussions of evolution, you're going to talk about the industrial use of artificially selected plants and animals. You're going to see discussions related to cellular theory that talk about bacterial disease, the need to prevent the spread of pandemics, um, and the need for simple precautions, including things like quarantining. And when you see the discussion of heredity, we see discussions of things like sexual health and concern about venereal disease, and we see eugenics. I want to emphasize the fact that the discussion of eugenics in these high school biology textbooks was not usually framed as an application of the theory of evolution as much as it was framed as an application of the principles of genetics or of heredity. And it wasn't until a little bit later that the idea that genetics and heredity um, connected to the theory of evolution and what we call the modern synthesis 
Um, and these textbooks tended to treat these as separate concepts. Many people have read these textbooks from the Scopes trial and from this era and observe the fact that these books are unapologetically advocating for eugenic principles that we think are abhorrent. They talk about the need to sterilize the so-called feeble-minded. They talk about the need to confine an asylum and prevent from reproduction certain people who may be undesirable. There's no getting around the fact that these are clearly appalling suggestions. They were opposed in real time. There were people who were opposed to the, uh, eugenics at that time. And I think the visibility of that opposition is much more present to us today. But for the most part, the religious movement against the theory of evolution did not directly address the idea of eugenics as an application, partly because people didn't, I think at the time, largely view eugenics as directly related to Darwinism in, in, in an obvious way. What they were concerned about in terms of social Darwinism had more to do with political ethics and militarism and the unrestrained capitalism that was being pursued under the rubric of survival of the fittest. But what we see from other studies that look at the religious responses to eugenics in that period is that very few of the religious opponents of eugenics talk at all about Darwin or talk at all about the theory of evolution. William Jennings Bryan himself was, of course, a major political leader, deeply influential in the Democratic Party for over a quarter century leading up to the Scopes trial. And in his home state, at a time when his brother was the governor of Nebraska, there were eugenics laws on the books that he never really made any public statement against. So it's true that the progressive politics in biology were part of the reason why people opposed it. But I think a mythology has grown up around this, which tries to make it seem like the anti-evolutionists of the 1920s were well-meaning even if they were wrong. This is sort of the way someone like Stephen Jay Gould describes it in some of his writings on this period. There's a, there's a certain sense in which we then read the history of eugenics into the history of anti-evolution. And the truth is, is that there's very little evidence to suggest that these ideas were that strongly connected in the minds of evolution's opponents in the 1910s and 20s. Of course, the battle over teaching evolution in public schools isn't over. Intelligent design has made surprising headway in science classrooms in recent years, even though the courts have ruled that it is not science, but a rehashing of creationism. What perspectives can your book offer us about the battle over teaching evolution in schools, and perhaps also the controversy about teaching critical race theory in schools? In all of these debates over who determines what is being taught in the schools and who exerts control over the content of textbooks, the content of state standards, a lot of times what we recognize is that these are proxies for larger cultural debates that are going on outside of the schools as well. This is something that I try to show in my work on the anti-evolution movement from the 1920s. What's really going on isn't just people being concerned. Suddenly, 60 years after Darwin publishes The Origin of Species, they're not suddenly realizing that this doesn't 
conform to the Bible. What's new at the time is this new regime of education and this new assertion of control over who manages it and what it's for. To some extent, I think that's what we're seeing again, whether it is debates specific to the teaching of science, such as the fuss over intelligent design that that really had its peak leading up to the trial that you alluded to here in Pennsylvania, which was where intelligent design was declared not to be a scientific subject. But more recently and more importantly, I think these debates over banning certain books or banning certain subjects, such as allegedly critical race theory, from the schools. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting is that in the 1920s, the way that people attempted to respond to the anti-evolution movement was not to look for the technical ways in which evolution could still be taught or the parts of the biological theory that were not being objected to by its opponents. What happened was a broad over-response, which basically meant that the entire word evolution, regardless of its usage and regardless of its context, was cut out of a lot of these books if you look at the generation of books that emerged right after the Scopes trial. This shows a couple of things. It shows the inherent conservatism of for-profit publishers and content providers when it comes to issues of political controversy. The bottom line is the bottom line. Books that don't sell, don't make a profit, and are not worthwhile for companies to invest in. Books that might not teach everything that is wanted, but which avoid controversy, is more desirable. When we look at the debates over critical race theory or the broader discussions of race in American history that have come under attack under the guise of being about critical race theory, I think we're seeing that same kind of conservatism assert itself in the response of educational content providers. In the 1920s and early 30s, textbook companies that said, we're going to teach what's right and not really worry about these movements, those books failed. They didn't get adopted in, in many states, and they, they didn't make a profit. The books and the publishers that basically came from the philosophy of, we're not going to teach anything that isn't true, but we're also not going to go out of our way to teach things that will give offense to people. Those are the books that got picked up by the most people. And if a particular instructor wanted to supplement the new biology books by also talking about evolution, that was out of the content producer's hands. Nowadays, educational content is even more political, and the economic incentives for a book to be acceptable are higher than they've ever been. And I think the lesson that we might take from the story from a century ago is that we can't really look to these kinds of content providers to solve this problem for us, this political and cultural problem. They are going to create materials that follow the market. They're not going to create materials that are going to push the conversation outside of people's comfort zones. They didn't do it a century ago. I don't think they're going to do it now because there's still no good political or economic incentive for them to do so. It's on us.
It's on us as historians. It's on us as advocates for science. It's on us who are interested in a healthier relationship between science and society to make the case for things like this and not to expect that it'll be done for us. The book is Trying Biology from the University of Chicago Press. Thank you, Adam, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thanks again for having me on. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. For additional resources on this and other topics, please visit our website at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Rita Allen Foundation.